Hello, my fabulous chai drinkers. How's everyone doing? Welcome to season three, episode five of the show, coming to you from Washington, DC. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. It's such a weird time to be alive, and the duality is even more jarring if you're South Asian American. You watch the Indian subcontinent gasping for air while simultaneously watch America reopen. Lucky for us, our guest today is an expert in planning during uncertain circumstances and has even written a book about it. I am talking about Bina Venkataraman, author of The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. It has been described as a groundbreaking exploration of how to make long-term decisions. Venkataraman is also a science policy expert and journalist. She is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and served as senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama White House. In 2019, she closed the TED main stage in Vancouver with her talk, The Power to Think Ahead in a Reckless Age, which has been viewed more than 2.5 million times. And she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Bina. So I wanted to ask, Dr. Kendi's work is really redefining how we define racism and being racist. What do you think is problematic with how American media covers race? Well, there are a lot of different flavors of how the American media has been covering race and is covering it. And I have to say that in the last few years, I've seen a lot of improvement in how mainstream publications are covering issues of race. And I think this is owed in large part to journalists of color, journalists with vision uh, of different races in newsroom leadership that are saying, you know, we really need to be more thoughtful about this. We need to listen. We need to think about our community of audiences in a way that isn't pretending to be colorblind or presuming that they're all white. And I think part of the lesson that has arisen is really in part due to the election of Donald Trump, where you had a lot of journalists of color who were warning about candidate Trump and were largely marginalized in some news organizations from telling the narrative that this was a person who had some really dangerous views about people of color, you know, the way he was talking about Mexicans, the way he had talked about and treated Black people, the history of his family. And that turned out by the time we saw the president responding to what happened in Charlottesville when uh, there were neo-Nazis marching in the streets and he argued there were very fine people on both sides and, you know, obviously a young woman was killed. That was not a surprising trajectory for journalists who had watched that closely from the point of view of this is a man whose ideology and ideas and rhetoric is dangerous to certain communities. But for others... I think they were able to overlook some of that about Donald Trump. So I think part of what's happened is that news organizations have recognized that good journalism means that you have diverse newsrooms. It means that you think about a diverse range of audiences for your news and your opinion coverage. And it requires that you take seriously issues of race, that this is not like a side issue. It's yeah. actually a very core issue. And it's mm-hmm. particularly in the United States with our legacy of slavery, it's sort of like the original sin of the country. And it has shaped so much of our economy, so much of our political system and our social systems. So it is not a side issue. It is a central issue, much the way that American capitalism is a central issue or the climate crisis is a central issue. These are really 
core to whether our society can be what was outlined in the American Revolution and in the Declaration of Independence, if we can even live up to our ideals of freedom and equality. So the problem has been for too long, I think, that news organizations presumed their audiences to be monochromatic. They presumed that their journalists of color who were covering these beats were sort of, that was sort of a side issue. But I've seen a lot of change. And certainly since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there's been an even more rapid and urgent call for change in how newsrooms cover these issues. And I will say a lot of it is owed to some of my younger colleagues. So I'm sort of at the end of Gen X, beginning of millennial. And I see some of the younger millennial and Gen Z journalists out there of all races, really pushing for coverage that is more aware of social justice issues, more making them a focus. And it's becoming a business imperative. You know, just if you think about the fact that you want to have an audience going into the future for these news organizations, you need to be able to cover issues that matter to your audience. And for a whole generation of young people, if you're not dealing with these issues and you're not covering them in a really focused way and seeing how they relate to other issues, seeing how, you know, how racism comes into play when we're talking about COVID-19 because there's a disproportionate impact in communities of color, then you're not covering the issue in a way that's relevant to them. And so you're going to lose the ability to capture a huge audience. So I think it's both about making sure you're relevant and still have a business model that works, but also making sure you have relevant journalism, that you fulfill the mission of journalism to really be vibrant and reflect the truth and reflect the truth as it arises from different communities. And that has been, I think, for too long, not a priority of news organizations, but I really see it shifting. I was speaking with Wes Lowry about this too, because he he said it so great. He said that objectivity is like this imaginary white man, mm-hmm. you know, and this leads into my next question about, because there's been so much discussion and debate in the past year. It's really, it's unlike anything we've really ever seen, a real reckoning kind of awakening. We've seen so much discussion and debate over racial justice, racism, newsroom, objectivity, Who gets to decide what is racist and what is objective? What has your experience been? Because for me, I really have a problem with this in America, and I write about it in my book, is I feel like white people get to decide what is racist and what is not. Do you you find that? That's a really, I mean, that's a profound insight. And I'm so glad you talked to Wes and I would love to read your book. I have to say, I'm looking forward oh, to reading it. I'm going uh, to my book on my podcast. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> I'll look for call. it. I'll, I'll certainly look for it. But oh, I will email you. I will mail okay. you a copy. <laughs> yeah. Let me, well, let me know when it's coming out. And um, if you have any op-ed, if you have op-ed ideas for the globe uh, related to it, please give us a shout. Oh my gosh, I definitely will. I will follow up with you after this after this interview, but it's coming out October 12th, 2021. So and, Great, what yeah. a good date. That's uh, <laughs> my birthday is the 11th, so I'll remember oh, it. Really? <laughs> it. Oh, fantastic. That is, um, that is such a sign. Um, but yeah, so what do you think? I mean, so I, I really think about this a lot because I used to teach undergraduates at MIT and you know, one of the things that I would teach them is to try to understand the biases of their audiences when communicating science. So scientists will often think that they are objective and that their audiences have these biases 
and that they just need to give them the objective information and the audiences will understand that information and they should understand that information and overcome their biases. And the real way to understand how to communicate science, for example, is to recognize that you have biases too, right? And that your biases shape your worldview and even the questions you might ask as a scientist and what you choose to focus on as a scientist is shaped by your worldview. And that we all have, like, we all view the world through our own lenses. We, you know, I think this is borne out in the neuroscience that we have subjective experiences of the world. And that's not to say that there's no such thing as, you know, the ocean or observable objective phenomenon, but we all see that through our own perceptual lenses and biases. And when you're a scientist, the important thing to do is to understand that you also have these kinds of biases so you can relate to your audience, but then recognize that you applied a method in coming to your conclusions as a scientist that included testing your hypotheses, testing your assumptions against available data, evaluating what the different outcomes could be, having that process peer-reviewed by others in your field to get it published. And if you're doing that as a sort of in a very credible way, the way the most credible scientists in the world would do it, that doesn't mean it's entirely free from bias. No process is entirely free from bias. Again, the questions you asked to begin with might have reflected your bias, but it's a rigorous process that brings more objectivity to your conclusion. So after you've done that process and you make the conclusion, for example, that COVID-19 is primarily spread through air, through aerosols um, transmission and not through surfaces. So it's mostly, you know, when we are coughing or talking or shouting or singing and other people then breathe that air. So you've made that conclusion as a scientist and your job is to explain not just to your audience what your conclusion was, but how you came to that conclusion and the process you used to come to that conclusion and that's the way to build trust, as well as understanding and empathizing with whatever biases or values those people have, because some of their biases include that they, you know, might be afraid or, you know, want to protect their families or believe in protecting their business and not wanting to close it down, whatever that might be. So when it comes to journalists, I think in a very similar way to how I think about scientists and discussing these issues with scientists, which is to say, as a journalist, you have biases just like everyone else. No journalist, because of their skin color or their life experience, is objective. So people like to think of like some halcyon days of Walter Cronkite and what an objective middle-of-the-road journalist. Well, the reality is, you know, he had biases too. He had blinders about certain issues. He covered, chose to cover certain issues. But good journalists, Walter Cronkite among them, but journalists of all different colors, races, all different ethnicities, economic backgrounds, generational backgrounds, can apply the same rigor, the same methods that allow them to test their ideas. They talk to people, they're critical with the information, they're skeptical of anything they hear, they double check the facts. And they try to draw conclusions that are based on what the evidence shows. And that process can be as close to objectivity as one can get, but it doesn't mean that the people are inherently objective. It just means they've applied a process and a rigor to the way they've done the journalism. And here's where I think things are breaking down a lot is that people don't understand that. They don't understand the process by which journalists do their work. 
And journalists don't always do a great job of explaining to readers how they do that. Uh, the same way that scientists don't always explain, you know, how did you come to that conclusion? What did the scientific method look like? Obviously they do that for their peers in their journal articles, but they don't necessarily always communicate that to the public. And I think journalists, you know, a great piece of commentary or a great feature article will show transparently the way that the writer wrestled with the different counter arguments, the way they wrestled with the information, even show some of that skepticism and rigor applied to the issues. And that's where I think journalists build their credibility. And that's where the focus of objectivity should come in. It should come into the process by which we do our job, not in terms of who we decide belongs in doing that job based on some characteristics. Well, one of the things that I think is really racist about being able to talk about race in America is that, I mean, now I think people of color are really stepping up, but even like when Trump first came onto the scene, black and brown people were like, he's racist. And my white friends, my closest, oldest white friends would be like, that is so offensive. Like white people get so offended by the term and the word racist, but I'm telling you about like an experience that happened to me or I'm calling out someone that I know is racist. And now four years later, people are like, you know what? He was a white nationalist actually, (laughs) or yes, he was racist. So I just feel like finally we're getting to determine, I'm just reaching a point in my life where my new logo is, White people cannot determine what is racist. We have to decide. We have to tell you what's racist because you never experience it, right? Well, I think this is where Dr. Kendi's work to me has been very helpful as a lens of looking at this because one of the things he writes about in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, in which he reflects on his own biases and his own experiences and instances in his life where he believed he held racist attitudes towards fellow Black people, towards different groups, he talks about being a racist or an anti-racist. anti-racist yeah. And he talks about these not as fixed traits of human beings, but as stickers that we can peel on and off as we go through the world. So just because you have and hold a racist belief today or took a racist action today and supported a racist policy does not mean that you're doing the same thing tomorrow, right? It creates the possibility for people to change but also the possibility to call people out for those attitudes and behaviors and actions. And I find that really useful because in these conversations about who is a racist or is this something that's racist, people are so allergic to being called racist, right? Like they really hate the idea of being called racist that it it causes them to kind of- Shut down. Turn a blind eye, right? Yeah. Shut down and turn a blind eye to really problematic behavior. And if they're not wearing a white hood- <laughs> Yes. And burning a cross, they think I'm not a racist. And- well, Dr. Kennedy says this in his book. Right. Like, Even David Duke says he's not racist. So it's right. about being anti-racist. Yes. It's- right. And I think we really need to get over this. Like we all need to get over the fact that it's possible to be called a racist, but it's also possible to change, right? And so maybe it's okay yeah. to- Knowledge that someone's being racist, but that doesn't mean you're saying that they're beyond hope or that they can't behave differently. What you're saying is what they've done is wrong and the belief that they're advancing in that moment is wrong, but that doesn't make them irredeemably yes. evil people either necessarily. You know, So I think yes. we have to get more nuanced about all this. It's not easy to do, but I really do think it starts with 
white people, people who are particularly non-black people, I would say, I would count, you know, all of us in this, in the sense that to be comfortable with saying, you know what? Yeah. That thing I said was racist and I'm sorry for that. And I was being a racist at that moment in my life. And I'm going to commit to doing better. I'm going to commit to being an anti-racist. Exactly. Well, that leads perfectly into my next question, which is, I love that, you know, you're an Indian American woman who is launching this project alongside an African American man. And as two South Asians, I think you and I know how racist Desis can be and how mm-hmm. deep it runs in our culture and societies. I mean, in addition to colorism, I mean, hello, right. fair and lovely, right. still there. Um, <laughs> how do you think we can educate our own communities about our own discrimination? And do you think Desis are interested in being less racist because I don't know. This is a huge stereotype, but I don't know. There's people even in my own family. I, you know, I was just back home in Taka. I'm just like, God, you guys are so racist. You don't even realize, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, on my extended family, I think there's some real colorism, if not racism. I mean, I, I married a white man several, you know, how many years ago has it been now? 12 years ago. And I kept thinking, you know, he was very easily accepted into the family, despite have, being from a different culture. And, but some of my extended family members, you know, I remember imagining at the time, imagine if you were a black man, would they treat him this openly? And I had some real no. skepticism about that. <laughs> no. uh, even though a black man would have been just as culturally different as a white man. And I do think it's, you know, it's this, this ingrained, you know, racism and to some degree hatred of self, right. That, that goes back to colonialism and this idea that lighter is better. And it's so deeply disturbing because it is, I think, a form of self-punishment to try to do this. And, and for that matter, I think to try to, and need to have someone be inferior based on having even darker skin than you, right? Like, what is that need coming from? A deep insecurity, a deep history of oppression, a deep history of marginalization. So to me, it's more than anything, it's deeply sad when I see and hear Desi's being racist in that way towards Black Americans, Black you know people around the world. But you're right. I mean, I don't know. I think that there's a huge appetite. I just see among young people and yes. you know, even my generation and younger to kind of be in solidarity in the fight against anti-Black racism and to also recognize, I think there's such an assimilation, a dominant thread of assimilation of Asian Americans, including South Asian Americans. And I, I don't know if you would say this the same for other countries where you've spent time, but here, you know, there was such a sort of like accommodation and assimilation that happened in a lot of our experiences that I think there was also to some degree, a little bit of a denial of the racism in our own stories. Yes. And I just find personally, like in recent years, being part of and and aware of a broader social justice reckoning that is going on in our society has allowed me to recognize, like really look with eyes wide open at some of the experiences I had in my life that I think I just glossed over and pretended were not racist. (laughs) And now I really see them differently. And so I think that's part of the opportunity here for they see is, is to say like, once you recognize that this is a problem and that this is happening, it'll give you a better understanding of yourself. And what you realize is that the quest, the endeavor to make our society more racially just and inclusive is one that benefits all of us. It is not only morally right because 
Black people have inherited the legacy of slavery and are more marginalized in our society than anyone else. So it is morally just to be part of that. And that's really the driving reason why I am part of this conversation. But it's also in everyone's self-interest to have a society that includes more and that doesn't rely on the inferiority of some in order to uplift others, right? Like that is a broken right. system. It's a broken society. Amen. Take me to church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. What a analysis and answer. I love talking to you. This is so fun. <laughs> I could do it for a lot longer, but I feel like I have to oh, run seriously. soon. Yeah. I should start a spilling chai happy hour edition. Oh, oh that would be so great. Wait, so where, where are you now? Where are you based? I'm in DC. I'm completely okay. based in DC. Yeah. I'm often in DC in the non-pandemic world. So I, we, we should have to meet up, have a real chai. Yeah. Yes. I was just going to say for a real cup of chai. Oh my goodness. That would be fantastic. Are you up in Boston? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So if you make it here, please let me know. Can I tell you, I'm a big Bengali stereotype. I am so terrified. I've only been to Boston once. It's so cold. I don't even want to go there. Like, <laughs> oh, come it, in the summer or the fall. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. So beautiful. I know Newbury yeah. Street. <laughs> yep. Yep. We've got more than Newbury Street, girl. We got, yes. we got a lot nicer places than Newbury Street. So oh my don't goodness. worry. I went there last, like in two, um, first and last time, I think 2003 or 2004. So yes, I am overdue for a visit, uh, especially since I'm such a big history nerd. So I really need to go. Back. Oh yeah, absolutely. We've got it all. We've got the freedom trail. Got Come on up. Yes. <laughs> In the summer. We'll spill some chai. It'll be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so like you, I am also an opinion journalist. What do you mm-hmm. say to people who critique journalists like us for not really being journalists or for being activists. Do you get that? Yeah, occasionally. And, you know, being an opinion journalist is different than being a straight news journalist. We are entitled to share our opinions, but I remind everyone that everyone has opinions, just like everyone has biases and subjective experiences. So I think the real answer is, you know, being transparent about the research, the evidence base, the values that bring you to your conclusions, and then people can disagree with them. And being open to that disagreement and that conversation is what makes us journalists, you know, and bringing in some of the same standards that come into straight news reporting, which is to say, talking to lots of people, reporting out our points of view, being willing to change our points of view, which is, I guess, more similar to scientists as well. And I, I think of myself as an opinion journalist you know, there's certain beliefs I have, right? Like in people's basic human rights, regardless of their race or gender or background, right? That's a belief that I have that's unlikely to change. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like my ideas about what should be done on student debt or my ideas about, you know, how we solve the climate crisis or what should be done on COVID-19, you know, I'm very open to what my reporting and what the evidence show. And so I think, just being clear that that's what makes an opinion journalist a journalist, right? That willingness to go deeper and to research and try to figure out what are those perspectives, but while also being transparent about what our values are and what we believe in. And yes. I think it's not the same as activism. Activism is more about trying to achieve a specific outcome that you kind of stick to, right? And you join that movement. But I do think that there are some gray areas and that's increasingly the case these days. Yeah, you know, I just go back and I just go back and forth because I feel like it's a way of like dismissing people. But I also feel like journalism is like evolving, you know, so you got to get with it, too. Yeah, (laughs) like they need to get with the program. That's true. 
Yeah. And if it's activism to believe that, you know, we should address racial justice in society, yeah. like that we should have a racially just society, right? Like, yeah. okay, that's a form of activism. But I mean, I really, I mean, this is what I told Ben Smith of the New York Times when he was interviewing me about the emancipator, you know, if believing that the climate crisis is a problem or systemic racism is a problem and that we should do something about it is advocacy or activism, that's fine if you want to call it that. I just think it's reality, right? Like these are real yeah. problems. We have to start with acknowledging that we have real problems. Exactly. And that's the basis from which we should start having the real debates and discussions. And there's so much rich terrain for us to disagree while accepting that we have a problem. Yes. And that is why I feel sometimes stonewalled in these conversations, because if you don't even recognize that America is racist or its roots were from white supremacy, if you don't even want to talk about it, how the heck are we going (laughs) to start getting to the solutions? So that's why it's so important what you're doing now, because we need a platform like that. You know, people, I mean, history is living history. And this was very recent history. I mean, you know, you and I were from South Asia. I mean, talk about those are ancient civilizations. America's very young. People forget. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so true. So you worked in India, Alaska, Cuba, Mexico, Vietnam, Guatemala. I'm sure I'm missing some places. Which of these places were most memorable for you? Which is your favorite? You would say is your favorite. (laughs) Uh, I have so many favorite places. I can't choose among them, but I have favorite cities. Like my favorite cities are Madrid and New York and Istanbul. I have favorite countries. You know, Cuba is certainly among, among the top ones. The countries where I've spent a lot of time, like Vietnam. Um, and India, certainly Mexico have, I have a deep connection with them, but I find that I can sort of like find home almost anywhere that, you know, there's a sense of home that can be found with people who are totally unlike you in all the superficial ways or who grew up in totally different worlds. And I find that that's the like real reward in having lived around the world and, and in traveling is to be able to find all these versions of home that really have to do with finding common understanding and purpose with people. And that's, I think, the gift of being, yeah, being a world globetrotter. Do you miss traveling so much? (laughs) I do. I miss traveling a lot. I don't miss the quick trips that just like leave you in sort of jet lag whiplash. Yeah. Like the work trip. Yeah. The quick work trips though. Some of those were fun too, but I miss the, like, you know, getting a deep experience, you know, spent some time in South Africa in 2018 and did some work with scientists and policymakers and activists who were working on water scarcity issues and then spent some time outside of Kruger seeing animals and it's so memorable, but Mm. I do think one gift of having slowed the pace of my travel One, my carbon footprint is lower, but two, I've really been relishing some of the memories of the trips that I have taken and the places I have lived. They've been coming back to me and I've been able to kind of savor them and kind of just sit with them a little bit longer than I would if I was just moving on to the next itinerary. Uh, Well, I have to ask you, what were you doing in Cuba with that? Was it a musician and you were helping like organize his records? Oh, um, I was working with a film critic and helping her organize films, archive films, Cuban films from before the revolution, during the revolution, and some of the banned films. She had actually, she had some of the films that the Castro regime didn't allow to come to light because they were critical in a sort of satirical or veiled way about the regime. And so I got to see just some wonderful film. I, I, you know, I feel like I've 
seen a large portion of the films that had been made in Cuba up to the year 2000, uh, which was when I lived there, but it was a great experience. What a cool experience. Like, how do you find these experiences? Who are you? Do you just wake up and decide to do that? Oh, well, I, I studied abroad in Cuba and I met this film critic oh. while I was there and sort of invented my own independent study or course. Oh. I don't know. I, I, I think one of the major ways in which I've been lucky in my life is I've met really interesting, fascinating people. And it comes from asking a lot of silly questions and just putting myself in situations where I might run into someone someone remarkable like you. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So great. I love talking to you. Well, thank you so much for your time. We have to spell chai together in person. We will when the when the pandemic's over because I need to hear more about you. I didn't get to ask all my questions. So definitely. Well, this has been such a great, great interview. I have so much to work with. Oh, good. Sounds awesome. It's nice to meet you. Um, thank you for doing this. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. As we continue to try to navigate and imagine a post-pandemic world, Bina's work reminds us that we can be empowered, even in times of crisis. After all, isn't that when we are reminded what we are made of? If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We are also streaming on YouTube, so make sure to check us out there. Follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast. And until next time, let's keep spilling the chai. Chai.